0: Good morning. Hey, everybody. Morning. Let me set my timer. Sorry, I'm a little late. Okay. Uh, but this is a rich text we get to look at together. My name's Micah, by the way, if I haven't met some of you guys. Um, I'm excited to look at this text. And for those of you that have been tracking with us, I, I hope that you've been a part of this study and this past six days, uh, you've been digging in this text in chapter four here and asking good questions. Um, I know in our community group, it was just a beautiful time of. of querying the text. God, what are you saying? What does this mean? This dream about a tree that stretches to heaven and um, and then a, a king walking around in the f- forest like a beast for seven years. Uh, there's a lot in this text and I'm excited to, to dig into it with you. Um, I got a lot of ground to cover. The goal is for me. I want to draw a pretty straight line from Nebuchadnezzar um, through Bugs Bunny through the Book of Revelation and even some current events um, in our world. So stay tuned for all of that. And uh, but first, let's kind of anchor ourselves. I, we need to get in this snapshot of verse twenty-nine and thirty of what, because the the action of the text pivots on this moment. Let me just read it two verses. Verse twenty-nine again. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, he answered, he's kind of talking to himself, I guess. He said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? So, Let's get into the snapshot. Nebuchadnezzar is standing on the, uh, in the courtyard overlooking his kingdom. And this is in a sparkling new palace that he had just built. His father, the previous king, that palace wasn't good enough. for, for daddy. Daddy's palace is not good enough for me. And Nebuchadnezzar is establishing his glory to, to a higher level. And he's looking over his Babylonian kingdom, which spans modern-day Iraq, Turkey, Iran, Jordan, Israel, Egypt, and Saudi Arabia. This is a massive kingdom. All the all the quibbling going on in the Middle East, you know, for the last thousands of years, Nebuchadnezzar had it on lock. Like, he just owned this region, and he's looking out over it. And now remember, though, he's conquered a lot of territory. He's probably made a few enemies. A city is only as strong as its walls are secure. And the Greek... Historian Herodotus wrote of of Babylon that the outer wall of the capital city was 300 feet high, so thickly fortified that a chariot uh, chariot driven by four horses could turn around on the top of the wall. It was so thick, and he uh, had a hundred gates of brass within this wall, ways into the city. So it's secure, and it's gorgeous. One interesting piece of the topography of, of the city of Babylon is the Euphrates River flowed in the middle of the city. Its waters fed the hanging gardens. If you've heard of the Seven Wonders of the Ancient World, this is one of them. The, the, the hanging gardens were fed by the waters of the Euphrates via hydraulic pumps. They had developed to pull this water up, up many stories high, and and nourish these gardens, the hanging gardens Nebuchadnezzar built had built for his wife in a treaty, I think, with Assyria. Um, So she's an Assyrian princess. She's coming, and now she's living in Babylon. She's homesick of the mountainous region that she grew up in, and he's like, "I'll bring it to you, babe." And he erects the hanging gardens. Uh, like husband of the year award <laughs> right here, I would say. So, um, and so remember the, the river's running through the city and I just love picturing this. There, he had a stone bridge over the river to cross it and an underground tunnel under the river. This is thousands of years ago. He had quite a setup here. And so also note, he's, the, he's not just a king with a great setup. He's the king of Babylon. So, I want to dig in and give you a snapshot of what Babylon represents, because this, this motif of Babylon, this nation, this people, runs from Genesis through Daniel onto the book of Revelation, and even into our modern day. So, backtrack. Noah Genesis, has three sons. One is named Ham. Ham, after the flood, is cursed. His bloodline is cursed. And he has a son named Cush. And Cush has a son named Nimrod. I told you the line was cursed. So his son's name is Nimrod. I mean, babies aren't that intelligent, but this must have been a dumb baby to get stuck with the name Nimrod. Get over here, Nimrod. And so he found, Nimrod founded Babel you'll see in, in Genesis chapter 10. Now, the Hebrew word for Babel is the same word we're using here for Babylon. It would, so, the the city of Babel that makes the Tower of Babel, you remember your uh, Sunday school flannel graph? Uh, he, this is, that you could just as easily translate it, the Tower of Babylon in Genesis 11. Now, it also mentions that Nimrod is a mighty hunter, um, which is now, this is really interesting to me, and this is sheer trivia. We're not going anywhere with this. Bugs Bunny, about 70-some years ago, in one of the original cartoons, Elmer Fudd's chasing him, and at this moment, he's vulnerable, and, and Bugs Bunny could like do away with him, and he says, yeah, I couldn't do that to the little Nimrod, and he's referencing Genesis 10 as a mighty hunter. It's like if This little kid was shooting hoops in here, and he can't even throw the ball up to the the hoop. And he's like, look look at the little Michael Jordan here. You know, like he's being sarcastic. Nobody gets the joke in our culture. And we think Nimrod means an idiot. So that's why you kind of chuckled when I said there's this guy named Nimrod, Bugs Bunny. So we won't preach another sermon on the degradation of children's programming today. That we've gone from like these biblical allusions to Yo Gabba, Gabba or whatever the case. So we won't go into that. But uh, now back to, to Babel or Babylon. Genesis 11. Uh, Nimrod founded the city. Listen to what they say. One verse. They say, come to one another. Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Key phrase here, top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So they have this drive to make a name for themselves. People need to see how great we are. This is the heart of Babylon. Note, the tower has its top in the heavens. And here we are in Daniel chapter 4. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is pictured as a tree with its top reach. Let me read to you verse 11. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Now, this doesn't literally mean heaven like it reached where God's throne is. It means heaven like the sky. Um, but this is Daniel four eleven. It was Genesis eleven four. Where Babylon is, is reaching to the sky with their tower. Is that a coincidence? I think so. That's just a coincidence. But uh, you're like, Mike, here goes the conspiracy there. Um, so Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon is built on the site of the Tower of Babel though, okay? So now, we're going to go another layer down. You know how Satan uh, the, was an angel, he was named Lucifer, and he plotted in his heart To stage a a coup in heaven and overthrow, dethrone God. You know the place where we get that in scripture? It's Isaiah 14, which is specifically about the king of Babylon. And we're going to, let me read it to you. Isaiah 14, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly In the far north. That's way up there. I will ascend above the height of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. If you just circled every word about a vertical ascension in that text. So we see in Genesis a tower. We see in Daniel a tree. We see in Isaiah this mountain. This vertical imagery. It represents mankind's self-sufficiency. To climb the ladder to the top, to ascend the throne and rule ourselves without needing anything from God. Finally, in Revelation chapter 19, this is moments before the great wedding feast of the Lamb. And it's the only time in the New Testament that the word hallelujah is used. The saints are, are extolling God. They're lifting him up. They're thanking him. And, and they're rejoicing that Babylon, the whore of the nations, is destroyed. Fun Sunday afternoon. Go read Revelation 19, okay? Uh, it's Here's one verse. Hallelujah. Chapter 19, verse 3. Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. God's like, you want to be up at the top? How about the smoke of your ruin is rising forever and ever? This is God's sense of humor. And uh, so this Babylon's pictured as the whore of the nations, this great prostitute. Um, and this is a symbol of, it goes through the sexual immorality of uh, luring all the nations into immorality and luxurious living. I don't know, it sounds a lot like America's influence on the world, but we'll see how that plays out. So whenever you see Babylon in the Bible, know that the motif is signaling high-handed arrogance, haughty self-sufficiency against the Most High. It represents mankind's uh, desire to climb the ladder to the top. Babylon stands for Mankind banded together, all to shake its collective fist at the Most High, at the sovereignty of God. It's a controversial doctrine because men hate God uh, being sovereign over them in any respect. It's a symbol of the high-handed arrogance of mankind. Our, our go-at-it-alone go independence, our self-sufficiency. Babylon is the essence of what it means to be a sinner— So, when we're reading in Daniel 4, King Nebuchadnezzar is the essence of what it is to be me. And some pride that's lurking down here in my heart. Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar's city, his capital city is 100 miles south of Baghdad in Iraq. About an hour outside uh, Baghdad and. um, ISIS is conquering territory around around this region and intentionally seeking to bring about a doomsday now. So, you know, you can actually, if you want, please ask me after service about some other tie-ins. We don't have time to go in. You can really hear me sound like a conspiracy theory. It's like, it's all connected. Obama's birth certificate and fluoride in the water, Babylon, it's all in there. Uh, Not quite. So back to Nebuchadnezzar on the rooftop. I want you to see what Nebuchadnezzar sees through his eyes. I want you to see what God sees when God looks at this pathetic little king with high-handed arrogance. Let's read verse 30 again. What's on Nebuchadnezzar's lips? He says, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? The literal Aramaic here is, I myself have built for my majesty. Okay, he rightly saw majesty emanating from his rule but he wrongly saw that majesty terminating in on himself. He rightly saw glory downstream from his rule, but he wrongly thought that he must be the fountainhead of glory. It must be coming from me. How wonderful I am. And that there's no greater glory if he would turn around and look upstream to the Most High who's using a greater glory within his little glory in his temporary earthly rule. He says, this is all for the glory of my majesty. Okay, this is a story about glory. When I say this, I mean Daniel 4 is a story about glory, and I mean the whole Bible is a story about glory, and I mean your whole life is a story about glory. And I mean this entire universe is a story about somebody's glory. What is glory? That's probably a good question to ask at this point. Is it uh, just fame? God's glorious. He's famous. Nebuchadnezzar was glorious. He was famous. Um, or, I don't know, we kind of think about maybe these spotlights, if you, if you had my perspective here, just bright light, like the glory of God, and you're just literally squinting from His glory. Is is glory just being, as as Lewis said, a living electric light bulb? Um, weight of glory, great book on, on this subject, but we don't have time. Uh, to explain glory, um, I, I wasn't there at the time, but I've, I've heard hippies back in the day, the in the heyday of... Um, drugs and all that fun stuff, they would, they would trip out or whatever and they're talking about the wild things of the universe and someone would say something so profound and the other one would look at them and go, man, that's heavy. This word heavy, the, the, the way they're meaning it, and we know what that represents, we know what they're meaning. They're meaning, that's got substance to it. That's weighty. That's not flimsy. What you're talking about right there, that's just, just it's got weight to it. It's got substance It's meaningful. It's glorious, is what they could say. Um, Something crazy about how God wired this universe is that when something is so weighty, it starts to exert a gravitational pull on other objects. We're all sitting here in this room because of gravity, because of the weight of earth. And Jesus is so glorious He's so weighty. He's so, he's so substantive that he's literally pulling everything in on himself. Colossians says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus, with his glory, it pleased God to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. It's all converging on Jesus. If it were a movie, the protagonist is Jesus. And therefore, you know who you're not? You're not cast as the lead. I'm not up for an Academy Award for my performance in this life. We're merely an extra. We're one of thousands of others, one of billions of others, cast for our role out of the trillions who could have been and aren't here. You are. You were cast for this role just to help move one line of the plot forward. And the tragedy of Nebuchadnezzar and of me and of each of us, well, the great tragedy would be if in the end you die and God says, wait, you, th- you thought the movie was about you? Awkward. It wasn't. <laughs> it was not. We, so the question is, will you step into the supporting character role he's given you in his story in history, and where the protagonist is Jesus, and you're a supporting character, or will you insist that when the credits roll on your life, it's your name that's remembered? It's how great and loving or glorious or uh, great you are. Nebuchadnezzar learns through this chapter by the end that he's not the fountainhead, that his glory is actually about another glory. Isaiah, in Isaiah, God says this. He says, I am Yahweh. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, or my praise to idols. So speaking of movies, um, a couple of weeks ago, my kids were watching uh, "Oh, Emperor's New Groove um, with Cusco, and then, and uh, who's the guy that with the Yes, he's so good. Anyway, Emperor's New Groove, you have a cruel king with no concern for others except for how he might leverage them for his own significance and increase the grandness of his accomplishments. That's Cusco's heart. No one can break through the pride, all the walls of pride, and say, hey, listen, you're living in a world with a population of one, and it's going to be your downfall. No one can break through the pride. And it's only when he's turned into a wild beast. A llama, if you can call it a wild beast, but it's a llama. And then he's brought to the lowest perspective. And he learns how to look up for the first time. Once he's hit rock bottom and he sees that he was never the point. I bet you didn't know that that was based on a true story. Daniel 4. 4. I I don't know if Disney meant, but I think they might owe Daniel some royalties on this. Um, Now, so Nebuchadnezzar learns this lesson, and let's go to verse 16. Let me read two verses. God's pronouncement, let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, or angels, the decision by the word of the holy ones, so that the end, uh, to to the end, here's the reason, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Okay, so the the central message of this entire book here, from the mouth of, of cruel King Nebuchadnezzar who wrote this chapter is that Yahweh is the king's king. He sets up and he puts whomever in positions of authority, but in the end it's delegated authority, it's delegated glory from upstream, from the glory of God. And he's, he, God teaches Nebuchadnezzar a lesson that my five-year-old has down pat— Ask who's in charge and she'll tell you God's in charge. From the top to the bottom, he rules over everything. And she doesn't have a problem with that. But it's as we grow, it's as we get a little taste of independence. And we can work this out on our own and it feels pretty, good, pretty darn good to be in charge of your own destiny. And we unlearn and we forget, and a spell is cast that says, I'm the writer of this story, and it can be about me. Now, the application of, of this, I think most directly for us, is a, that chapter 4 is about prayerlessness. Because it, it's a declaration of independence against God to not pray. All the things that we don't pray for are all the things that we're not trusting God for, that we're not clinging to Him to come through on, because I can do this. I can, I, can make, I can make it on my own, God. Prayer is the very native language of dependence, of being needy. So, if prayer isn't very natural to you, dependence on God isn't very natural to you and, and welcome to fallen humanity. But prayer is how uh, dependence naturally, instinctively speaks. And some of us, I know, would be more crippled if we tried to go through a whole day without coffee than if we were to attempt to make it through a whole day without pleading with God for direction and wisdom. Help me. Holy Spirit, empower me for what I'm setting my hands to do. This is David in Psalm 143. says, Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go. For to you I lift up my soul. This is a morning, faithful. Uh, his head comes off the pillow, and he says, I want to know the way I should go today. I'm lifting up my soul to you. Dependence. But I feel it today. What, what you're feeling and what we're all feeling is we're so busy running around building our own little kingdom. We're little Nebuchadnezzar's building this own little kingdom, starring in our own little indie film that we hope to premiere at Enzy on one day. It's, it's, this is why we don't pray. Our prayers seem feeble and weak or powerless. And that just kind of leads to more, to, to less and less praying. The more your prayers just feel weak and awkward and, and sporadic. Because we're all just running so busy with our own little world that we're building for our glory. Now, I know the conviction. It's like, Micah, I, I know we're I'm not praying as much as I should. I feel that. I, I don't pray as much as I should. It's hard. Life's frantic. There's distractions, but I'm, I'm doing the best I can. And I, I, we need to dispel that myth right now, because if you had a doctor that said, you, you have a fatal condition, ma'am, sir, and unless you take this medicine every night between 11 and 11.15, 11. you'll be dead by morning. I, would, you, would any of you have trouble being faithful to that? I, you would never miss a day. You would never say, oh, I meant to take that pill but I was too tired, or I was watching a movie. I didn't, I didn't leave enough time I need to manage my time better, and then I would take the medicine. You would never do any of that. And, and so when people, and when I say, yeah, I wish I prayed more, I know I need to, stop. Is it possible that you don't have a time management problem? Is it possible that you're not having trouble thinking of something urgent enough to lift up to God, is it possible that there's a theological and a spiritual problem here is it possible that you don't think you need prayer meaning you don't think you need god and so the only thing keeping me from praying as i know i ought to is the only thing that kept nebuchadnezzar from yielding to god and that's i'm just i'm i'm doing just fine on my own i've got what it takes There's an old chorus of a a hymn. Uh, I need thee, oh, I need thee, every hour I need thee. All the things that we don't pray about are all the things we're not clinging to God for. Every hour that goes unprayed is another hour that I have been uh, my own Nebuchadnezzar. I've been my own ruler, and I've got what it takes, and I I can... do this, God. This isn't my first rodeo. I got this. I'm self made. James says has this rebuke. If you don't feel rebuked enough. Here's James. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such, a, such and such a town, and we'll spend a year there, and we'll trade and make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time, and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live, and we'll do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So, James here isn't saying, stop making plans. That's arrogant. He's telling us how we should make plans, how we should participate in the story being told by our life. shouldn't be haphazard. It should be intentional, but you should always be reminded, even in the very language you use about those plans, he's directing the movie. Humility says, I want to be working from his script in my life. James says, what is your life? You're a mist. So think of the example of a housefly. You know, they, their lifespan is 24 hours. So if you're born in the morning and you're then, you know, by noon, like you're ready to reproduce. You, you need to stay, you need to keep your mind pure until noon and then you get to reproduce. And then by afternoon, your, your wings aren't flapping the way they used to. And you're just, you're, you're starting to break down, and, and by nighttime you're dead. James doesn't even give us a full day here. We humans, we're not just dropping like flies. Our life is a morning mist, evaporated by mid-morning, and we're gone. Such a short story for each of us. And if we don't trust his directing of it, and we don't trust his writing of the script, we're going to improv something off script. And, and think we can make... We, uh, let's, let's add some drama here. I'm going <laughs> to do this stupid thing. We don't pray because we don't need God's help doing what we intend to do with our life sometimes. We're making plans contrary to James' recommendations. We're, we're moving, we're shaking, and sure, at times we might need an occasional little helping hand, a little pick-me-up, Thank you, God. Uh, help me get out of this bind. But we've pretty much got the tools we need to do what we intend to do with this life, with the choices we're making, with the education we've given ourselves, with the way we've postured our life, and the trajectory we want to see by the time we hit retirement age. We've pretty much planned it out. And none of it is, if the Lord wills, we'll do this. If, if he, as he writes the script, it may go this way. It may not. Prayers only make sense if you're praying for God-sized things. Things like, how can I be a disciple of Jesus? How can I follow what He has laid out? How can I run in His steps on mission, opening my mouth as He told me and proclaiming good news? Man, if your life was spent in that posture... You're, you're, you just see that, man, I must be abiding in Jesus. I have to stay connected to the vine. It's my source of life. And you might, as you're walking that path, as the disciples did, you might start making some real enemies. And you might need grace to love those real enemies and to pray for those who are persecuting you. We see this exactly in Acts chapter 4. Watch their dependence on prayer. The early church is being persecuted for really the first time uh, after Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven. And they're left with the, okay, we got to get the good news out here. And so they go out and they start proclaiming it. And people aren't happy. If you want the same fate we gave to your master, keep it up. And so they meet in, at the end of Acts chapter 4. They meet one night. And when they heard of it, the persecution, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth, who's writing this story, they're saying, and the sea and everything in them, look upon the threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. The reason they needed to pray is because is their life was Jesus's. It belonged to his story. Help grant to your servant to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God answered those prayers. They were not weak. They were not feeble. They were in line with the story God had told them that, that he was writing through Jesus. And God answers those prayers. And, and this wasn't a gathering for, for them. It's like, hey, are you going to be at the, at the monthly prayer gathering? No, this was like in the moment there's a need and, and we're going to gather. Jesus, if you don't come through, we're done. We this is a war. You you've given us your marching orders. And if we're on the front lines going up against the enemy, if we're down in the trenches and you've called us to go over in this war for the gospel, we need ammo. We need your spiritual power, boldness in us. Okay, so we're almost done and we're wrapping up, but let's recap the major plot points. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and doesn't really know anything's wrong with his outlook on life. And then ne- Daniel translates it for him and says, y- you see yourself high and lifted up and-, and God's ready to chop you down unless you're ready to repent. And then Nebuchadnezzar, a year later, hasn't done anything and, and the, um, the promise of God comes true. But now in between that, There was something interesting, and it's just one verse. And this is the verse I want to conclude with, verse 27. Daniel translates this dream for him and says, Therefore, O King, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness, and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. This is a short verse In a long story, but God here through his prophet Daniel is extending grace for Nebuchadnezzar. It doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to play out on that script, and he offers repentance. Now, sometimes when God pronounces judgment— It is final, and he gives no opportunity for repentance, and and he rips the kingdom from a king's hand even that very night, and we'll see that next week. That is exactly what God does um, in chapter 5 to the king, uh, to the next king after um, Nebuchadnezzar, but uh, you look at another instance where God says judgment is final, and the people of Nineveh repent. Their king repents, leads the nation in repentance, and God relents. He turns back from the destruction he had planned for them because of their repentance. And so I, I think it's clear that God was giving this moment of repentance. And this moment for Nebuchadnezzar was 12 months to heed Daniel's call to repentance, to turn from sin. A year goes by, and now Nebuchadnezzar, he's thinking like, well, uh, yeah, I shouldn't have eaten that ice cream the night before I had that crazy dream, but (sighs) luckily I dodged that bullet, and he mistook um, God's merciful patience with God's weak impotence, that the word of the Lord was not sure, that it was not that that threat could just be safely ignored. It's like when you're, you, you're driving and, and for the first time you see your check engine light come on and you just get this pit in, the pit in your stomach like, oh no, what's this going to cost me? And you're like, okay, okay I'm going to get that looked at tomorrow. And then, you know, life gets a little busy and you, you kind of get used to it. A week later, you're like, oh yeah, I really need to get that fixed. I need to get that looked at, a check engine light. And it, but it doesn't hurt as bad. It doesn't give you quite that pit in your gut like, oh no, then the transmission shot. And so eventually it's like, yeah, next week I'm going to fix that issue. Now it's just white noise eventually. Right, Cassie? <laughs> when the check engine's light, light is on, eventually it's just like, it hasn't blown up yet. We're probably fine. And you're just driving down the highway. And uh, I'm, that wasn't really a rebuke for Cassie because I should be the one fixing her car. Um, it's my problem. So one day she'll be driving down the highway and you start to smell something funny and then your engine seizes. And you really should have dealt with this a year ago, Nebuchadnezzar. God is long-suffering, but grace does not mean endless opportunities to continue in sin. Finally, God says, fine, Nebuchadnezzar, thy will be done. You want to have a heart like a beast? Why not a mind and a body of a beast to match God can do this. In in Proverbs 21, it says, "The The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Yahweh is the king's king. And that means he's our king. And if he's our king, it means he can issue commands. And he can call for repentance. And his spirit can stir something in you that you've neglected. The spiritual check engine light on that, that's just been there. And you know you need to deal with where you're at in life. In the course of your life. In your self-sufficiency, you know something needs to be done. Or you did at one time. And then life just happened. And you kept on writing your own story. And, you, and it says, well, nothing, lightning didn't strike me yet. And so you think everything is, is just going to be okay. Don't mistake merciful patience for weak impotence that the threat can just be safely ignored. This moment, I believe Daniel stands again calling for you to hear the word of judgment on your pride, to turn away from your sin, to, to ungrasp your fingers from, from striving up the rungs of this ladder. You're just the, you're climbing this Tower of Babel that's doomed. But you're, you're ascending. Your status is moving on up. Ope, un, unclench your hands from that and open your hands to receive grace. True humility isn't just like, oh God, I'm so sorry. And you're just grinding your face down into the gravel to show God you're so sorry he's called you to to humility and to receive grace. And it's by looking away from the mirror of self to see something hideous or something lovely. Stop looking at you. That's not humility. Humility is from a, a lowly perspective to look up as Nebuchadnezzar did finally. And look up. and And after Seven years of insanity, or a lifetime of insanity, finally seeing that there's a glory that's greater than my own, and that mine is my life, and my glory is actually about that. It's actually about His glory. It's repentance. That's humility. Authentic humility looks up and sees the all sufficient Jesus. As we sometimes sing, "Behold Him there, the spotless Lamb." The great, unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. My perfect, spotless righteousness. You don't look inside and be, oh, my righteousness is filthy rags. Fine, that's true. But your humility looks up and, and it sees the perfect righteousness that's been provided for you. Would you pray with me, Jesus? Would you do this work by your spirit? Would you stir in people's heart a posture of lowliness and humility that from the low perspective, from a spirit on bended knee, looks up and sees you as righteous and glorious, weighty, substantial. Jesus, in a world full of men trying to be God's, You stooped down to become a man. We know humility of your life on this earth and your death, even death on a cross. Therefore, you are highly exalted. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. You are writing this story. We don't have the final line. You've told us the line is bow your knee, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. You're my master. You're my king. You're sovereign. I repent, God. Amen. We're going to come to this table this morning. Would you stand? Servers, would you come and prepare to service the elements of communion? And the way we do communion file down the center aisle and come out and take the bread dip it in the cup and circle by the outside of the chairs to your seat and so who's welcome at this table uh, if if the king's king is your king if he's your master this blood was shed for you not if you perfectly obey the master but if he if your life is surrendered to him This is his blood shed for you. This is his body broken for you. If you're not ready for a place of surrender, and whether you see it or not, your heart is high-handed arrogance against the most high, you're not welcome at this table. But for all who are lowly, Jesus told a story about a feast, and those who were busy, moving, and shaking, they weren't ready to come. But for the lowly, the crippled, the lame, the outcast, they were ready to come to a feast. If your heart is ready to feast on Jesus' righteousness, come.